Episode 9, EB5 superhero David Hearson, managing partner at David Hearson and Partners, LLP. You're listening to the EB5 Superheroes podcast. Join host Matt Trash as he interviews the EB5 industry's courageous men and women, leaders protecting the path to the American dream for the good guys and foiling the sinister plots of the not-so-good guys. Billions of dollars and families' lives are at stake. Go behind the scenes as our EB5 superheroes tell their stories of triumph against adversity, paving a brighter future for EB5. And now, financial engineer, industry expert, and EB5 superhero, Matt Trush. Welcome to the EB5 Superheroes podcast. I'm Matt Trush, your host. For those of us living in the EB5 world, we've grown thick skin and learned to buckle up tight for the roller coaster ride we lovingly call EB5. EB-5 is an incredible federal program that has brought tens of billions of dollars to the U.S. economy, created hundreds of thousands of new jobs, and helped countless families legally immigrate to the U.S. But it's been a bumpy ride, to say the least. There have been cases of fraud, swinging pendulums of regulatory uncertainty, unnecessarily long processing times, program sunsets, and even twilight. But there's a light at the end of the tunnel. EB-5 can once again become the best and fastest and most stable letter combinations in the alphabet of U.S. immigration paths. EB-5 can regain its highly competitive position versus other countries' immigration investment programs. EB-5 is poised to navigate America out of another economic downturn. Now is the time, more than ever, for the good guys and good gals to make the dream a reality again for those who believe in EB-5 and the American dream. Meet the EB-5 superheroes who are on the front lines of making positive change, the courageous leaders who are shaping the course of EB-5 for good and triumphing against adversity. Get the inside scoop, hear their stories, learn from real-life successes and failures. Billions of dollars in families' lives are at stake. Join me in welcoming David Hearson, managing partner at David Hearson and Partners, LLP. EB5 superhero, David Hearson. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad you invited me and happy to be here. EB5 superheroes are industry leaders like you who are out protecting the path to the American dream for the good guys and foiling the sinister plots of the not-so-good guys. David, let me brag about you a bit. David Hearson has been practicing immigration law for over 40 years, focusing on all aspects of EB5 investment immigration law. David has been certified as a specialist in immigration and nationality law by the State Bar of California, Board of Legal Specialization continuously since 1990. David has witnessed and participated in the evolution of the EB-5 industry since its inception. In 1991, David personally prepared and filed one of the very first EB-5 cases with the INS, now USCIS, which was approved in less than five months. David personally argued appeals at the Administrative Appeals Office, the AAO, and had four cases approved after they were denied by the INS. David Hearson is the trusted voice in the industry, and we are proud to have him join us as a celebrated EB-5 superhero. David, to start off, tell us a bit about your background and how you made your way to the U.S. and as a leader in EB-5. About 41 years Years ago, I took the California bar. I then filed for visas and came into the country on what today is known as EB1C. That's the Intra-Company Transfer Multinational Manager Executive into a new law firm started by my then partner and myself in the US. Once we came into the country, I didn't necessarily want to do law. I'm asked if I'm going to retire and I think, no, I'm having too much fun. This is just great stuff and really feel satisfied when you get these results for the individual. Since you've been involved in EB-5 since its inception, how have you seen it evolve over the years? What did you see in the beginning and and how it's sort of grown and, and skyrocketed and now it's reached this plateau? 
Tell us a little bit about how you've seen the industry grow and evolve. Well, it started off very, very slowly in the early 1990s, so that by 1992, Congress, in a positive effort in this regard, created the Regional Centre Programme. It was called a pilot programme at that time and was set to sunset at various times and was about to sunset on many times all the way up until June of this year when it finally sunset and there's been no reauthorization to date. I've seen the program goes through ups and downs so that in the late 1980s, we had all those very bad cases. Following on that, we had uh, an improvement, but a very slow improvement because the matters of Ho and Izumi and those came out and created tremendous restrictions on could practice the law and added restrictions because of the way immigration interpreted those cases, making them so restrictive that uh, many regular type cases that should have gone through were denied or delayed. It continued to grow and towards the end of the 2010 period, there was a tremendous insurgent of EB-5 investors. Most of them came from China and the Chinese government were not as strict as they are today in allowing funds to move through, although it was still probably not quite correct under Chinese law that they sent the money over. With that, we had various times when EB-5 would sunset or other provisions were due to come in, like the increased investment amount. So we had what we called our rush periods. During that time, we had an incredible number of cases coming in. We were probably one of the top filers in the US. And to that extent, we had to use overtime and weekends for the staff to be able to complete every case that came our way. And I'm proud to say that with every rush period, there was never a single case left over in the office that could be filed that was not filed. We have pictures of our front office with 60, 70 boxes waiting for FedEx pickup. In fact, on one of the pickups, they didn't have room in the truck. We had to follow them in a car to take them to the depot. We were very successful in in those cases and got a tremendous number of approvals. We also had, as we went through all of this time to present, some very bad actors. This caused a cooling of people's wishing to invest, aggressive of position taken by Congress because how could you have targeted employment areas in New York? It didn't make any sense and perhaps it didn't make any sense but it followed the rules and those folks who were using the system were using it by the letter of the law and it was just how Congress had set it up and how immigration were interpreting it so it was quite legal. I had one in Beverly Hills which they kept raising in Congress together with the New York stuff. They had only one census tract next to them which when averaged with their particular census tract gave you the high employment. So they were just following the law as well. Under the rules that just got set aside and we expect to come back at some point, together with the reauthorization of the regional centers, I think that we will be able to see the whole of the Los Angeles areas qualified and therefore Beverly Hills will also be qualified. You were telling me how you got into immigration law, but why EB-5? Of all the areas, how did that become your specialty? I've always had the interest in business investment and I've run my practices as businesses and therefore there's been a level of success that would not otherwise have been if I was purely a lawyer without that added experience requirement. I did some courses over the years for accounting and other things so that I felt that the way I run my office is, is done 
in a business-like fashion. So when I saw this EB5 coming up, it was the same as E2s and uh, L1s and so on, which I've been do- doing E2s and L1s regularly. It was just an add-on, but it was a big add-on. And because of the tremendous amount of changes going on in the program, it didn't really take off as it should. But when it did, we did incredibly well. And that, of course, has become somewhat history. And it's it's picking up because of the direct investment stuff's coming through. So EB5 became of interest. Firstly, I'd seen it being debated in the Senate. Just happened to be there at a, at a conference and we took a walk up to the Senate and timing is is all that it took, almost a matter of luck. The introduction was, you know, what is this all about? Started looking at it. I was asked to speak on a panel before it actually came into effect. So I had to study more about it. And after it came into effect, I was on another panel and it just grew from there. EB5 oh. became a speciality. China definitely played a huge role in the development explosion of EB5, as you were mentioning, from 2010 and on. What do you think was the tipping point there? Why did China become such a huge advocate for the program? And do you expect now that Chinese have the ability to go into the EB5 direct at the same pace as everyone else, that there might be another tipping point that we see? The Chinese, you need to look at what their motivations are and were for EB5. Their main motivation was to come into the US and get their children educated. These guys were living, the ones we dealt with, in the lap of luxury with more money than they could ever spend. And they could go back to China and make tons more money than they'd ever make in the US, even in a relatively successful business. So you had the education issue. You had the other issue was the fear of what would happen in China going forward. And in fact, some of that prediction has come to play in that the Chinese government have tightened on export of funds, making it extremely serious from a criminal point of view if you are found exporting. I believe the numbers are more than 3,500 US dollar equivalent without permission the individual lands in jail and all assets are confiscated. So it's pretty serious. They run scared of this because the Chinese government don't go through due process like we do. They'll show up at your door, guilty or not, and uh, they'll do what they believe to be the right thing. So it's 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 pretty scary for them having acquired these sizable businesses, which uh, sometimes were said to have been stolen from the government, other times acquired from the government, other times just operated, although they still belong to the government, as if they were their own. And there was just this ton of money floating around. So that was that was the motivation. And they were able, through their business and otherwise, to actually move money. The rule of sending the US $50,000 equivalent per person, they gathered their 11 people around them, got their 550000 to take care of the admin fees. And it was it was, it was a relatively easy flow for them. The source of funds became okay with immigration as long as they could show the original money going to the friends and relatives was clean. The rest of it flowed very clearly, a lot of documentation, and people were getting it. And as more people got their approvals, more people wanted the approvals. It grows on itself. As soon as less and less were getting approvals, so more and more people stepped back, uh, the chilling effect took place. So that's, that's the, the history of China. Vietnam was fairly similar, but it was later. A later starter. When I look at Shanghai and I look at Ho Chi Minh City or Shanghai, as some people still call it, Shanghai is uh, 20 years ahead of Ho Chi Minh. But Ho Chi Minh is developing at a tremendous rate. And you can expect the same results that we had from Shanghai and other major cities in China, like Shenzhen, which is their newest industrial city on the border of Hong Kong. That is incredibly successful. My first office in China was in Shenzhen. And I'd come to the office every six months or so and look out of the window and you just see this massive rows of cranes building high rises. And you came six months later, they were completed. It was fascinating to see. US would have taken years 
stairs to build that height of building. I don't know if they're going to fall down or not one of these days, but uh, uh, codes were not, I think, observed as they should have been. But I think uh, buildings are still pretty strong. The city of Shenzhen just grew and grew. You made a very good point. The type of investor who's either going himself or, or gifting the funds to a child is really thinking about the future generation and their educational opportunities, potentially career opportunities, or they may be better for him or her back in, in their home country. But moving $500,000 or 550 or 900 or a million is not a significant number for these multi-billionaires. So this isn't really a retirement plan. It's more of an investment immigration education opportunity for children. Would you say that's correct? It's correct. However, there's a second problem to what they were doing. Because of their fear of what was coming down the pike in China, they also took the opportunity to make some substantial real estate investments in the US. We have a a very high-end residential area here, which overlooks a golf course and the ocean. And they'd spend $12-15 million cash, put a couple of Mercedes-Benz in the drive, fully furnish it, hire two servants or domestics, uh, gardeners and so on. And the usually the man, not always, would go back to China and make money. But now they had that house investment. And if you measured it from 10 years ago, that's probably doubled in value. They also went into various business opportunities. So they really spread their wings into sizable, legitimate operations. And that was their insurance should things really blow up in China. Now, would you describe what's happening in China as blowing up in a positive or a negative way? The currency restrictions have gotten much tighter and those who could get their families out or their funds out have done so to some extent. But would you say that the ones who didn't jump on the boat when they could are now stuck or there's newer opportunities for them back at home? They are partially stuck. They are subject to the draconian laws of the Chinese government in moving their funds. There are certain ways to get permission to move funds, but they restricted what you could go into. And at the time, hotels were excluded. So you could go into energy projects and things of that nature, and that would fly. But the approvals were few and far between, and the risk of asking for it exposed them to all kinds of things like, but you only pay tax on about a tenth of what you're telling us you want to move over now, and you're still going to have a lot behind. So they didn't take the risk. They were very cautious in what they were doing. I think that's probably what happened. The current situation is money's been tightened up. The Chinese government, they issued tremendous amounts of money to everyone who then became extremely wealthy. But then China appeared to be running out of money. So they did the reverse. They started pulling that money back in again. And that's the mode they're in at the moment, trying to recuperate a whole lot of the monies they dispersed over the last 10, 15 years and make themselves strong again, because fiscally, they're not that strong based on their cash. So they want to correct that. Is there any possible way that a Chinese investor today can participate in EB-5 or their funds would already have to be in Hong Kong or the United States? Are you saying that it's almost impossible today for the Chinese to participate in a significant way? Never underestimate the ability, the intellect and the creativeness of the Chinese people. Never dismiss them because we happen to be US and think we know everything. They are incredibly bright. They know what they're doing at certain levels. I'm not talking about the peasants. And they find ways to move stuff. They do exports. They leave half the missions in Hong Kong, Singapore, wherever. They do all kinds of methods, which lets them have money in the US. But it's not as easy or as sort of the numbers as it was historically. They are scared. They're scared of getting caught. The 50,000 per relative, first of all, bumped up to you'd have to have 18, 19, 20 relatives. That becomes a lot more difficult, who were willing to show their identity, their numbers, and that they were legitimate conduits. This is not easy to get. Chinese don't want to show anything 
anything to any government agency. And that's also part of the resistance here why some of their cases failed on the source of funds issue because they were just straight unwilling to give the information. You don't give this kind of information to your government. So they were viewing it at the Chinese standard and therefore they wouldn't do it. If you have time for a quick story, I'll tell you one of the source of funds stories. Please, I'd love to hear it, David. Thank you. The Chinese investor would come into the office and you'd give them this long list of documents you want to prove source of funds. So he says, I don't think I can get any. So said, well, you won't have a case. So they go away and they come back with a third of the documents. You then tell them, not even going to file this case. You don't have enough. I can't get any more. But two weeks later, they come back and now you have two thirds. And the same would happen. And you'd say, I can file, but you're going to definitely be denied. They say, well, I'll take my chances. And you'd get your RFE and they would find the balance of the documents. So documents were there, they just didn't want to produce them. The other fear you'd always have with Chinese is that they create the documents that weren't there in the first place. And that's a very serious problem. I have a former Chinese attorney working in my staff here, and she's our inspector of documents, and she can spot a fraud a mile away. She'll say to you, this corporate document is stamped in the left corner, it should have been the right corner. That's not how it was. We have that ability to check on stuff, and we check on as much as we can, but we too can be fooled, and so we, we really cautious in what we, we try to file. China has been a very significant player. Now, as you mentioned, Vietnam and India. How do those countries and their evolutions uh, mirror what happened in China? And what do you think is the future for those countries? Well, India is allowed to get money out at a much faster rate. So that's not a problem. Indians, however, are very astute business people. And they look at the ridiculous returns you get on an EB-5 investment, and very few of them are willing to go into those investments, although they can. So then they start looking for their own businesses. And that's how you get the motels and hotels and other businesses owned by Indian nationals. That's how they do their EB-5s. So India's okay. India's sufficiently numbered that they are in line for being retrogressed. They were, were for a while, then they were brought back to current, and they're, they're on, the, on, the, on the cusp of that happening again at some point in the near future. Vietnam just followed in the steps of China, but uh, much slower. To give you an idea, in my last year of touring, I went to China six times in one year. So uh, my home became a, an aeroplane and I occasionally landed on this side or that side. Vietnam, I did three times in that year, and we had attorneys in the office who also went probably four or five times. We had a Vietnamese attorney. We have an Indian attorney. We also have a Korean attorney as my co-managing partner. So these countries are covered by people who are familiar with it. So our Indian partner would go to India every couple of months, and he'd built up a nice network of people. For example, we have a very sizable, good-looking program that we like for EB-5 Direct. So we're introducing people to the president, and most of them are, are going into it. And it's sizable, it's scalable. So there's no issue of running out of visas. At the end of the day, however many we get, we'll be able to process. And they like it. So we simply forward them onto the sky and let him do his his pitch. We, as I said earlier, won't sell anything or recommend anything. And if they don't like it, we have others. We'll show them after they've looked at that one. That one is waiting for an expedite approval by immigration because it is in the national interests, in the healthcare area. So a lot of exciting things going in the EB-5 direct mode. So don't discount it, whereas previously it was like, 2% of all the EB-5s, I think it's got traction now, and I think it'll continue to have traction even when EB-5 regional centers are also lost. Well, tell me about that, since you bring it up. Why do you think that EB-5 came to this point, that we are now in this limbo stage, that the reauthorization hasn't come, and we're all waiting for good news? Do you think that there is a greater regulatory or congressional changes that are coming? What do you think is, is really happening behind the scenes? The regula- 
regulatory changes were in several years ago. The industry approved all the controls that were being put in, but there were factions within the EB5 industry that could not agree with each other, could never reach a proper consensus. So you had two or three factions all making the representations to the congressionals and not supporting the others. As a result, the program failed, could not get that legislation through. It should have been through five years ago because it was already there. We discussed it, we'd analyzed it, and we were willing to live with all of the restricted requirements because they made sense for the benefit of the investors. And we could never challenge something that makes the investment more safe for an investor. So those provisions are still there. There were other provisions that some of the players didn't like that related to TAs because they were making a lot of money because they had TAs in their areas and they didn't like what was happening and they got a lot of support. So as this was about to be approved for extension just before the end of June, one senator got up and under the Senate rules, you can't put these things through on an emergency basis just to go the long route, which will eventually maybe come up. And he stopped that going through because he was, however, influenced, we won't get into that, by one of the factions who would not get what they actually wanted by reason of this particular thing coming through. We believe that there's greater consensus now and that it will come through when Congress has the time and interest in doing it again. They brought it right up to the point. House had approved her waiting for Senate and it didn't go through. So it's a crazy situation. You can get people to come to the well, but you can't make them drink. And on the second or third time, they won't come to the well. So that's where we, we landed up with no program. And this, in my mind, is 90% of the industry wanted it, but the 10% had more than 50% of the power. And this is how our system works. The democratic society. If you have your majority, you carry it through. Do you expect, however, that there will be some changes at the beginning of December or even at the turn of the year? Or do you think that this back and forth could take longer than we all expect? I have to look at history and say, I cannot tell you. I can give you my feelings and my feelings are will come through, will come through no later than the end of the second quarter, that the restriction will be there. There may be a couple of tweaks. Some of the tweaks we believe, and this is rumored, will be to drop the maximum down to one million and the minimum down to 800,000. So there's a very small difference between the two. So the 800,000 will not be the only ones getting attention, but the millions will as well. And this will move through on a much more orderly fashion. So time will tell, but you have no ability in my mind to actually say, this is what's going to happen on that date. There are too many players who have different thoughts on it. It's like herding cats. They'll never go in the same line. Since you've seen it from the beginning till now, and you now see you know the state that we're in, which you say you're optimistic about EB-5? Do you think that the future is indirect as long as we can play that card? Or do you think there's some new variant, if you will, that might pop up? Well, all of the above. Yes, there's future in the EB-5 direct. Yes, I believe the program will be reauthorized and it will take off again. And depending on the relationship of the administration with the Chinese government, it may become easier again. Remember, there was a lot of friction in the last administration. And as a result, China's administration cooled off very strongly against the US. And so it trickled through to the levels of money flowing into the US. All in all, I believe, and this may be Pollyanna speaking, that it's all going to be fine in the end. Beautiful. I hope so too. David, everyone looks to you as the trusted voice. Really, you have exquisite experience and integrity. What do you think is your superpower in this EB-5 game? And also, how do you infuse that in your team of EB-5 superheroes at your firm? Well, firstly, we have the bandwidth 
and robustness to take on whatever comes along in the EB5 arena. It can be direct, it can be regional centre, whatever they have, to the extent that we opened a litigation department we were suing the government who didn't deliver their adjudications on time. We had 15 or so cases pending at one time. I have one attorney who just does our litigation, other stuff as well, but that's how far we got, that litigation had to be part of the game. The other issues of the firm is when we were called upon to do those massive numbers in the earlier days, we delivered. And we were challenged at one point by one of the larger firms who are friendly competitors, but they had the cases and we were sharing it with them. They didn't like that we were getting the, the lion's share. And they said, we are doing very poor standard work, substandard. So we said to them, we'll select with the permission of the project, 10 cases and send them on to you. Never heard back from them. We did not have a problem with our cases. We had a very high standard. We were very quality control oriented. Mistakes happen. And clearly, everyone will make a mistake. We've got someone terribly embarrassed about. It should never have happened. But we live with them and we overcome them. And the very few that happen don't happen again. The staff is robust. The staff is United Nations. We've got all so many countries here. And the commitment to work and to the client's interest is phenomenal. They understand the need. They understand that people coming in from another country don't understand the language that we use. They don't understand why it's being done in such an illogical manner. They come up with logical suggestions. My usual facetious comment is, if it's logical, it won't work. So let's move on. It's sad. It really is. The staff, as I said, are really incredible. I'm blessed by the staff I had. We had a Thanksgiving luncheon here the other day and everyone went around the table. There was close to 20 of us and all expressed what they were thankful for. And so many of them had one or another of their approvals of being privileged to work with our firm and be with us. And that made me so proud and so excited about who we have and that they will keep going and do whatever's needed and whatever we call on them to do for the benefits of the clients. And we we compensate them appropriately when they do these magnificent jobs. Wonderful. You mentioned your uh, co-managing partner from Korea. So Mm -hmm. how is Korea part of your practice in terms of EB-5? Has it become a growing important country in the EB-5 mix? Yes, it does, but not necessarily for our firm. The reason being that the agents there have hired various U.S. attorneys, who might be Korean, in-house in their offices, and they do the work for nothing within their payroll system. So we can't compete with that. Even when they get charged, the charges are so low, there's no competition. And a lot of our big clients who were giving us all of their work, when they went to Korea, we lost that section of the work. Some of them, however, have seen the level and quality of the work and have started coming back to us. We do have some direct loyal migration agents. Koreans like E2 there's a tax benefit. There's an instant arrival. Let's put the kids into school straight away. Wife can work now without even having to go through an application. So there's a lot that attracts them and they want to come here and work those businesses. They want to make a living from it. So there's a lot of positive stuff that comes out of each year. But notwithstanding that, EB-5 is popular with Koreans and now direct EB-5 where they can run their businesses is also popular. David Harrison, thank you so much. I'm glad to hear that you're on the Pollyanna team of optimists in EB-5 that we all see a great future for EB-5 Direct, EB-5 Regional Center Program, and, and onward and upward. We really want to thank you, David Harrison, for all the great things you're doing for the industry, for your clients, and for helping them achieve the American dream. Matt, thank you. I appreciate your inviting me onto your program and look forward to future programs with you and to the growth and strength of the whole EB-5 industry. Take care. Thank you so much, David. That's a wrap. David Harrison and other EB-5 superheroes like him are the industry's best and brightest who are flying onward and upward to bring out the best 
in EB5. Join me on the next episode to meet the next EB5 superhero. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to the EB5 Superheroes podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe on iTunes, leave a rating, and share the podcast with the good guys and good gals who believe in EB5 and the American dream. To access today's show notes, ask Matt a question, or suggest an EB5 superhero to be featured on the show, visit eb5superheroes.com.